0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: All right then, suppose we should do this. suppose we have to do this. Um, welcome to the Inquisition. <laughs> I'm calling it. Um, it's not a normal minefield, and I need to declare up front that this was not my idea. Uh, I do this, um, sufferance would be too strong a word, so would duress, coercion would similarly be too strong, but they're in the ballpark of what I'm trying to wow. convey here, which is this was all Scott's idea, I'm not entirely sure it's a good idea, but he thinks it's a great idea, I do, which makes me worry that it might be even <laughs> worse as an idea than I fear. Um, we normally try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life on this show. Uh, Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. If this is the first time you've joined us, you're about to be very confused because this is not what the show is normally like. But Scott basically wants to just put me on the rack for however long um, the ABC will allow us today, and I suppose we'll see where we end up. Why we- does he want to do that? Well, I'll let him explain.
0: Scott? The way that you began, that sounded like Walid going into late night talk show mode. Well... <laughs> Here we are again. I guess we have to do this. Oh, so
1: what? Radio talk show? Yeah. Or like television? Yeah. No, right. no, no,
0: no. Radio. I don't watch television.
1: Like late night live. Yeah. I'm yeah. taking over from. Yeah. Right. Exactly. It's
0: like you're auditioning for the role. Is there something I need to know about? No? <laughs> no. Not at all. Okay. So we're not doing anything like putting you on the rack. This is not an inquisition. This is, in many ways, what I think both of us always hope. That the show is going to be every week, which is an opportunity for people to listen in to conversation had well. I mean, in the end, that is, I'm pretty sure, what our show is about. This is why we do the very, very strange things that we do, like avoiding any pretense of coherence, <laughs> 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 like having any clear idea about what it is we're going to say when we begin saying it. Uh, we try to open ourselves up to one another uh, in a condition of mutual deference, of curiosity, of curiosity. Uh, And in some respects, even a kind of moral wonder at what it is that the other person is saying. So what we're doing, it's just you and me for this show. The reason it's just you and me for this show is because this has been a bonkers nuts year. This has been a year that has thrown up ethical dilemmas at a faster and more furious rate than, well, a long time. I won't say ever. I won't even say within living memory, but it's been a big one. Um, I don't know about you, Waleed, I'm in a state of a degree of relative intellectual and moral exhaustion. There are a whole lot of problems that I think we've discussed this year, and I'm not sure we're that much closer to either solutions, much less to a clear concept of a shared future. More than anything else, I'm I'm looking forward to the year being done. Does that sound, uh, I hope that doesn't sound too kind of depressed or depressing, but I mean, this has been a big one, and I'm pretty keen to balance the books, to close a particular chapter, to take stock of where we are, of what's exercised us, uh, and about what it might say about the future. And I thought one of the great ways of doing that – we're going to do that over a couple shows. We're going to wrap up the year before we plunge into our our five-week summer hiatus. We're going to do a bit of a year in review, so this isn't our final a discussion, But I thought one of the great ways of trying to balance the ethical books is to draw attention to a piece that you've written that in many respects I regard as being one of the great examples of pulling all the various threads that we've discussed over the course of the last few months together into really quite a breathtaking argument, and an argument that I've got a few quibbles about and qualms about, but nonetheless. So the, the, there's a piece that my dear co-host, my wonderful friend Wally Daly, has written for the November issue of the monthly magazine. It's called Woke Politics and Power, How Liberalism's Blind Spot Let Cancel Culture Bloom. There's so many little snippets in it that I see uh, from, that have kind of popped up from Uh, discussions we've had with people like Hugh Brakey, who gets an honorable mention in the piece, Catherine Gelber, who we talked about concerning cancel culture earlier this year, even Paul Taylor, who we discussed the uh, killing of George Floyd with. And yet what you've done in drawing together these different insights, these different bits and pieces with a great deal of your own uh, further thinking and and reading, which I was really thrilled to see and to see what you've done with it, is you put together something that I think encapsulates some of our central points of contention over the course of this year, the number of ideas that we keep coming back to. But I think it also highlights some really important points of disagreement about what this means and what we then do next. But that's within a kind of furious agreement that I have with just about every major aspect of your piece and certainly where it ends up. So what I thought we could do, this isn't an inquisition, Waleed, I just want to talk to you about what it is that you've done, mm. about how on earth you got there, and I wouldn't mind fleshing out with you maybe a couple ways that maybe a few points could be qualified or how we might see things differently. Does that set your mind at rest a little bit more, or are you still no? God, no, no. Okay.
1: But that's all right. I'm looking for. I, I enjoy the sparring. I also like that we've waited until. December to talk
0: about November's. the piece that was in the November issue. <laughs> so that's very convenient for everybody. Yeah, but you know, um, the monthly hang, hangs around for a little bit. There's you know It's not like people aren't going to be able to find it. Uh, but also, uh, we have yeah, been
1: kind of busy the last four weeks. Yeah, time. it's true. There was an election. There was all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Um,
0: all right. What do you want to do? So you've, you've done something. Let, uh, let me just sort of start with your opening gambit. Not mm. the gambit with which you open the piece, but I think your opening intellectual gambit which is where you say that cancel culture is about power. Liberalism is about freedom. And in many respects, cancel culture has to be about power because liberalism doesn't give it the resources that it needs to achieve the ends that it desires. So you actually say that cancel culture – and I want to be clear that we're not going to spend the next little while talking about cancel culture. Now, we've talked about that a few times this year. But I am really curious about why it is that you decided to frame this – extremely hot topic by making recourse to what many people I think might find a very strange diagnosis, namely that cancel culture emerges from a fundamental or even fatal flaw within liberalism itself. Why did you decide to frame it like that?
1: Well, it's hard for me to answer why I decided to frame it like that without just saying something really bland, like it just seems obvious to me. So let me make one broad observation I think you're right that this piece is in some ways the minefield distilled. Yeah. Um, It is in ways that I don't really understand even or did anticipate. The culmination of a whole lot of themes that we've discussed on this show for years. One of those themes is the inadequacy of liberalism in various respects. So we've discussed the inadequacies of liberalism in... Uh, with respect to moral formation within a society a yep. lot. Yep. Right? that One of the things that liberalism does with its focus on individual rights and its sort of methodological individualism as a result of that, mm. or okay. perhaps the other way around.
0: Well, um, some would even call, can I just say, normative individualism. Yes, In other words, well, they, this isn't right. descriptive of the way that human beings are. It's actually, it sets out, what liberalism does is it sets out to create the kind of individuals that, that do well within liberal political orders.
1: Well, see, I actually think it's both methodological Mm -hmm. and normative. And I think that the methodological part is really important. I didn't use these terms in the essay, incidentally, but yeah, the methodological part is really important because it's about the lens that you use to see the world that allows you, that makes certain things visible and certain other things not visible, right? Mm -hmm. And cancel culture and the theoretical perspectives that drive it, um, really designed to apply a lens that sees the things that liberalism doesn't let you see very well. Mm. So we've discussed how, what liberalism does by sort of privileging um, freedom over other values and individual freedom at that over other values. One of the costs of that is some kind of social sense of moral consensus and indeed an emphasis on moral formation. It Mm. tends to leave these things to individuals to sort out throughout their own lives and the consensus of society on moral questions more or less disappears, but if it doesn't, it's more a happy accident of individuals happening to come together uh, around certain moral positions. That's one thing. That's the moral side of it that we've discussed a lot. The other side of it is the inequality or the injustice side of it, Mm. which is to say that because liberalism wants to frame things in individual terms, it's very good at achieving liberation on an individual basis, right? So, your right as an individual to vote, or your right to be able to attend whatever school it is that you want to attend, uh, that is without racial segregation, or your right for your your sexuality to be decriminalised irrespective of how popular it is in a majoritarian sense or whatever. You can go on and add all manner of things, particularly a lot of things that happened through that cultural revolution in the 60s, Mm. that liberalism has genuine claims to achieving. And they achieved largely on liberal grounds. That is that individuals have certain rights and that these rights need to be realised and they shouldn't be denied to people because they belong to some or other group that exhibits some or other kind of behaviour or some or other kind of feature, but they are nonetheless individual rights claims. The problem with that is that once you've done that, I think in the essay I call it, once you've achieved a a subsistence level of liberation.
0: I um, love that. I'm, you- I'm sorry with it. I love that. I love Thank that. You. I mean, at, at first I thought, hey, what's he talking about universal basic income about? No, he's not talking about no, universal no, basic. No, no, it's no, no. universal basic. Sorry, it's basic, liberation. a basic level of universal freedom. I think it's a wonderful, yeah. a wonderful idea. Almost has that kind of resting pulse that doesn't take you much further.
1: Yeah. So the idea is it, it's good at lifting you off the floor, but it it, mm-hmm. it doesn't let you deal with the ceiling, mm-hmm. right? And the problem is that if you view the world through that liberal lens, you will not necessarily see that very well because what you will say is, but you're an individual citizen and as an individual citizen, you have these rights. See, they're right here on a sheet of paper, particularly if you're in the United States, they're definitely on a sheet of paper. Mm-hmm. And that's that. Go about enjoying those rights. What it doesn't do very well is capture the way that those rights are in practice, limited or denied or unequally enjoyed people because they belong to certain social groups. So in Australia, you could easily illustrate that with respect to Indigenous people, but you can illustrate that with respect to all kinds of social groupings, if you like, racial ones, gendered ones, sexuality-based ones. There's all kinds of ways in which you can do this. And so what I'm saying is that without that limitation, without the kind of cosmopolitan ethic that liberalism kind of infuses society with... But also, simultaneously, its inability to realise the full extent of the enjoyment of that cosmopolitan ethic or those Mm. cosmopolitan ideals. I don't think you get a phenomenon like cancel culture, which is based very much on the assertion of group identity-based liberation. In all sorts of ways that I think aren't great, but nonetheless, that's the ideological engine of it. It's trying to fill that gap that Mm. liberalism leaves.
0: Mm. I've got a lot to say. Let's do a quick reset, and then I'm going to launch okay. Oh. Do I have to reset on yeah, the show? Yeah, you need to the... reset on a show devoted to your work. That's right. Wow, You've got to okay. earn your, you know. This is The Mountfield. You can listen to the show on RN, which you might
1: be doing right now. Or you can catch us anytime on the ABC Listen app or subscribe to our podcast where we just keep going past the um, end of the radio show. I've got a feeling we'll be going a long time today because Scott, he looks fired up. He's coming off the long run. He won't understand that metaphor, but but he is.
0: Scott, who's our wonderful guest? <laughs> Uh, No one. Um, You know, (laughs) uh, I made this joke the other week. I can't even remember who we were talking to that, you know, I tend to reference sort of, you know, books and philosophers and you tend to do albums and films. As a matter of fact, when I read the passage in which you say that freedom is what liberalism promises and yet because of certain internal limitations inherent to liberalism itself, freedom is precisely the thing that can never be. Fully achieved because liberalism denies the conditions upon which that might in fact be realized and it might overcome certain other conditions like power, which we'll get to in a second. What I actually thought about, believe it or not, was that wonderful, wonderful scene in Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight Rises where the ceiling of this horrible, horrific prison is left open precisely in order to give the prisoners (laughs) underneath hope. And it's the hope that actually intensifies the sense of imprisonment and creates the kind of long... It's the source of the torment. It's the source of the torment, exactly right. I don't want to over-egg this too much, but let's just go back. Since you opened it up, let's just go back to the 1960s, because I think you're exactly right. There's so much of the vernacular, so much of the moral energy of cancel culture. And I think so many of its justifiable claims, in fact, do come out of the background, the lived experience, but also, if I can put it this way, the mythos of the 1960s, about what the 1960s did in fact and maybe didn't mm. accomplish. It does seem to me that while a number of the arguments and some of the programs, especially concerning racial equality in the 1960s, while a great number of them were articulated perhaps in liberal terms or have been plotted against a kind of liberal trajectory of kind of gradual increase towards a condition of kind of mutual acknowledgement of one another's dignity and rights and whatever else. In many respects, the fuel of the 1960s was solidly communitarian. This is uh, is one of the things that I, I find constantly fascinating. If you read the rhetoric of someone like James Baldwin, a great African-American uh, novelist, uh, essayist, uh, someone who has really come into his own over the last two years in the dying years of the Trump presidency. What's fascinating to me is that his critique of racism isn't simply one of racial prejudice or of a kind of debilitating power imbalance. His great critique is black men and women are white men and women's brothers and sisters you know that. You know we have the same flesh. You know we have the same communal bonds. We you know we exist against the same moral backdrop. You know we have the same moral obligations to one another. And yet you deny it. You know this to be the case, but you refuse to live like it. In other words, what he sees isn't so much Um, necessarily a pure power power imbalance, but a commitment to essentially moral perversity, that you know what is true, but you refuse to live like it. But also a liberal perversity, right? Yes, I think that's right. That's exactly
1: right. Go go on. Well, so that as a liberalism can view all of these people as people who enjoy or should enjoy these inalienable rights. Mm. And so you can... Discuss them as being a fraternity, if you like, as what all liberalism is concerned with, is that each is equally entitled to the rights that liberalism wants to confer upon people. That is the maximization of their liberty. Hmm. Right? It, it's completely at odds with the lens that um, cancel culture or perhaps more accurately critical social justice theory wants yes. to use, whereby it doesn't understand these people as in a brotherhood or in any kind of fraternity. Yeah. It understands these people as belonging to quite distinct identity groups that are either the victors or victims Mm. of social systems that are designed ideologically to privilege one group over another in certain respects, Mm. or various groups over other various groups. And it might seem a subtle difference, but I think what I end up by necessity arguing is it's a very profound difference.
0: Mm. Mm. I think you're right and and in fact i think that is one of the most powerful dimensions of the argument that you mount let me just pull you up though on the idea of of group identity which you use as a diagnostic or even as a pejorative in many respects a pejorative term i do wonder though but don't you see the very longing for or the craving after group identity don't you see that as a kind of inherent if ill-formed moral protest against the presumption of what we were describing before as normative or methodological individualism. In other words, Definitely. even, no, even no if this isn't necessarily kind of right, and even, it's, even, if it's being, even if it's being pursued or weaponized to some extent in the wrong way, surely the idea that we exist, whether this is as an originary fact... Or as something that we sort of, by our wills, assign ourselves into, we exist only within a series of obligations to the past, to those with us, and to the future. I mean, there is something there, even if it's it's diagnosis is wrong, there is something there, I think, that's not just commendable, but vital.
1: So there's a couple of things I would say. One is, I don't intend to use the very notion of group identity as a pejorative. I, I don't think I did that in and of itself in the essay, and I don't intend to do that here. I have problems with the way in which it's being constructed mm. within the context of cancer culture and critical social justice theory. I don't like the way that they construct it. I think it becomes inevitably self-referential and essentializing of the people within those group identities. In other words, I think as we go through life, there is always a constantly a tension between the idiosyncrasies and the, of the individual and the diversity that exists within social groupings and then the social reality of those social groupings existing and acting upon people within it. And I think what ends up happening is liberalism emphasizes the individual at the expense of any kind of group identity in a way that crashes on the shores of reality and I think what critical social justice theory does is the opposite. Neither really wants to hold them in tension. It wants one construction or other to win. And I think neither should win because I, I just don't think that's an accurate description of the world. This is, this is one of the the great ironies, I think, of the way that critical social justice theory operates in the end, is in seeking liberation for certain groups, it ends up – and I know this from personal experience as well as just as a matter of theory – it ends up becoming very stifling and restrictive on people who are within those social groupings because it posits, whether it wants to or not, it posits a kind of real or authentic version Mm, of people within those groupings and then decides that if you're not behaving in accordance with that, that you're somehow complicit in a power structure that's designed to oppress you, um, which I think is a horrific outcome. And I think that's one of the... Reasons we end up where we do in the context of cancel culture. Mm. But um, I'm not saying that there is nothing to be said for group identities, for the fact that we belong in social groups. Um, I, there is something to be said against the ossification of those things, yeah. or indeed the redefinition of those things in a way that becomes um, essentialized, absolutist, and unduly constraining.
0: Isn't that interesting? See, I think the way that you brought that out is vital and what it in some respects does – I mean the very idea that a kind of essentializing notion of group identity, which then separates off into pure versus profane or pure versus uh, politically compromised – That already, I think, points to some of the contradictions (laughs) undergirding the notion of group identity in the first place. Because, I mean, what – group identity, for it to mean anything, it means that the network of relationships into which one is born are not necessarily chosen. They are inherited. They may be – Which is – yes. They may be renounced, but in order to be renounced, they need to be renounced perversely, if I can put it that way. Mm but it also kind of, yeah yeah, yeah uh, kind of but it also means that the very idea of a kind of spurious purity means that there can be no flexibility no moral virtuosity and no extension or expansion of the moral limits of that group and the way in which one then serves the various forms of obligation that one has. I'm not talking about even a sort of genetic or biological. I mean I, I mean life incurs debts if I can put it that way and I think group identity is one of the ways in which we describe the debts that we owe and the creative forms in which we try to repay those debts.
1: Yeah but I, but I can see why critical social justice theory falls into this because what it wants to do is for justifiable reasons, expand our understanding of these categories so that we have a a fuller appreciation of all of the things that get sucked into it. Mm. So to take the example of race, if the only way you want to define race is biological, then you miss the various cultural aspects of it that are encoded and that have happened over time, over, over centuries and generations, such that various preferences or you might call them, or just various cultural dispositions become delegitimized, and other ones become legitimised in a way that works out racially, yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. So I'm, tr- I'm trying to think off the top of my head of an example, but a- an example might be the way in which that art forms that have been produced by and preferred by white people become high culture that are esteemed, for example, and other cultural expressions that come from non-white people or black people or whatever group you want don't have the same kind of cultural heft, mm. right? So that reflects a power dynamic that must be at play. And it also invites us to understand race as something that is bigger than just what color is your skin, right? There, yeah. there are all these cultural undergirdings to it. The problem with that is – if you go too far down this road and you want to encode everything as being white or non-white, white or black, white or brown, white or Asian, whatever it is, then what do you do when you run into the fact that there are lots of people within that group of being black or brown or whatever, uh, or even Muslim, because I've seen this applied in the context, which I didn't mention the essay, but I've seen mm. this applied in the context of the Muslim community with, I think, disastrous effects, what do you do when quite a number of people actually have the cultural preferences or exhibit the cultural preferences that are not stereotypically black or whatever? Hmm. Do they become white? Well, they kind of do end up becoming white within this theoretical construct because that's the way you framed it.
0: Then
1: hmm. that becomes essentializing. Okay. We're going to leave this part of the discussion there, I think. Alright. Wally Scott's loading up his gun. Waleed. Looking forward to this. Yes. Wally
0: Dali, thank you so much for coming on the minefield today. <laughs> well played. Uh you stick around, your job isn't done yet. You're not getting paid thank extra, you. but you're gonna yeah. hang around for the podcast discussion that's about to start. If you're joining I'll us on the radio the program, <laughs> you can meet us here at the same bat time, same bat channel next week. Wally Dali, thank you so much. Let's talk again in a moment. Thank you. Well, Aid, this is this, this is terrific. I, I realize, you know, there is a, a dimension of self indulgence about this, but instead of shying away from it or apologizing for it, what do you say we just kind of lean into it yeah, a, a little bit? Don't. This is this is nice. Uh, one of the points that you make in the essay that I find both apparent, self obvious. But also incredibly problematic is your point that ultimately cancel culture is not an ideological battle between the right and the left. If anything, it's an ideological battle within the left or among the left, which means that as you've been trying to tell me for the last six years, left and right really have very, very little meaning in the context of this kind of discussion. So let me just try to put things a little bit differently. And this is, I'll acknowledge, the results of a number of browbeating conversations that I've had with some kind of good friends over the last few years, that maybe one of the things that we're looking at when it comes to cancel culture as a way of trying to pursue, uh, sorry, as a way of trying to diagnose the nature of injustice, try to pursue something that looks like justice, whatever means uh, that pursuit might take. One of the things that we may well be looking at here is, if you like, the revenge of anti-credentialism or a serious moral response to, To the fact of credentialism itself. In other words, it may well be that instead of this just being a disagreement on the left, what we're looking at are those who, because they went to the right universities, or because through fortune or good breeding or whatever else, you know, good forward-looking parents, whatever. We have some who have made it through the approved institutions, who have gone through the right schools, who have gone to the right universities, who have achieved the right tenured positions, and now are presuming to speak in a discourse that is already complicit. It's either already complicit in forms of inherited epistemological and moral injustice or didn't have the moral wherewithal to be revulsed by its own complicity. In those forms of injustice. And so what we're now what we now have are people who have been systematically frozen out of being able to achieve the right credentials to be able to speak in the kind of urbane institutional tenured circles that you and I would prefer. And what they're now doing is they're finding non credentialed ways of pushing back against a form of reasoning, a form of civic discourse, concepts of procedural institutional justice that have blood on their hands because of their complicity with legacies of injustice. If we think about this in terms of credentialism versus non-credentialed moral actors, does that help us or do you think that just deepens the problem?
1: Are you saying that the... That cancer culture and the sort of theoretical underpinnings of cancer culture are that anti-credential response. Yes, yes. Oh, I think that's one of the very worst arguments you could make about this.
0: Interesting. Why is that?
1: It's deeply credentialed. I mean, the whole thing is an outgrowth of postmodernism. It's the application of postmodernism to critical theory Critical theory being something that emerges out of the Frankfurt School, yeah, and then it takes this postmodernist turn via Foucault and Derrida and so on. And Habermas, who's part of the Frankfurt School, doesn't like that very much. But this idea that it's we need social theory not to describe the world and hide its kind of normative claims, but disclose its normative claims and then seek to liberate human beings from the things that enslave them. Which I think was the way Horkheimer put mm-hmm. it. That's right. Um, that that idea is critical theory. It then becomes fused with a postmodernism that then wants to interpret the world as a series of structures, like and constructs that are ideologically loaded to privilege one group over another. That's that's the guts of what we're talking about. Yes, Here, it cancel is. culture doesn't exist without that theoretical underpinning. That's right. I'm, I'm but, sorry, but can you think of something that comes more out of credentialed institutions? Yes, Th- this
0: is no, This well, well, is
1: exactly the product of mostly dead white philosophers. That is then repurposed and repackaged for the use of people who say they are outside of those institutions, but actually pick up all of the lexicon, all of the patterns of thought within those institutions. And if anything, the people that this does not include and will not speak to, the people that it although it weren't disclosed, it's the people that are silenced are those people that don't really have access to things like tertiary education mm-hmm. because they will use the wrong words. They will not understand the right language. They will not understand the authorised patterns of thought within this school. And they, you know, one of the school. This is why, and I didn't, I didn't grind this out in a lot of detail, but this is why one of the greatest flashpoints at the moment in this battle is not between people who are unschooled and schooled. It's not that the unschooled cancellors and, and the schooled people who are resisting them. It's people who are determined, you know, material Marxists and people who are attracted to this more postmodern identity based mm. critical version of critical theory. That's the real battle. And one of the arguments that the Marxists will be making is that you have no con- class is invisible that's to you. That's exactly right. I think that's right. Now, I don't know that that's absolutely true, but I think it is mostly true in the sense that when you look at critical social justice theory as something that wants to identify systems of privilege everywhere, if that's really your ambition, which it does seem to be, it's theoretical ambition, it is extraordinary extraordinary how absent class is from that discourse. Yep. And how often it's the language of those who are in the working class that is set upon as an example of that which is problematic. So I would have thought of all the arguments you could make in favour of cancer culture, the idea that it's kind of an anti-credentialism is the very least persuasive. Mm-hmm. Unless there's
0: something I've missed. I think there is a little least. something that, that you've missed. And look, I, I think your argument is about 70%, right? I mean, uh, what, what you've just said and the gap that exists, even between, if we don't want to be too highfalutin about it, the gap that exists... Between those who are most profligate on Twitter, for instance, and those who are not. Um, I mean, there is enough of a class and educational gap there to lead anybody who's observant, I think, to be a little bit suspicious uh, about people hopping onto Twitter and to speak in the name of of others. I think you're absolutely. And and it's true within those social groupings. Yes, it is. That's exactly right. right. So if you look at the people who have these
1: minority uh, ethnic identities or whatever it is, they're going to be the upper crust of those people yes, who are making these upper crust arguments that are based on abstract ideas that you pick up in arts degrees at tertiary level.
0: Hmm. I think where you're not quite right, though, I mean, critical theory, or if we want to call it post-structuralism or deconstructionism or whatever it is we want to say, things you know coming out to some extent of a form of somewhat extended and uh, dematerialized Marxism, which seems really strange to me, but I think that's precisely what was taking place in the 1970s. I mean, one of the things that we are seeing, I think, uh, out of what often goes under the name of, say, post-structuralism, post-modernism, critical justice theory, critical race theory. Uh, I mean, well, what this, I think, comes out of, though, is a kind of anti-credentialism in the sense that it refuses the canons that governed the laws of tenure – Surrounding who it is that gets to teach moral philosophy, analytic philosophy, political science. Um, uh, so even the fact, for instance, that where post-structuralism, post-modernism, deconstruction had to go in order to earn its its tertiary chops was into, for instance, English departments or faculties of religion, for instance, or geography or architecture, anywhere other than politics philosophy <laughs> political science moral theory and so on so I think even even there the fact that we're talking about uh, Derrida Michel Foucault I mean these are all characters who themselves are outside of a kind of established system of credentialism we have to remember I think just how radical Michel Foucault was even within the called normal so so I, I think the very fact that that this, transgressive intellectual language is being used and repurposed or applied in a particular way without some of the moorings I believe that it did in fact have in the late 60s, early 70s. I think this speaks to the fact that those who are objecting most to the forms of incivil or uncivil or angry or absolutist discourse uh, tend to be those who are in positions of tenured security they do in fact tend to be many of the inheritors of that of that sort of tenured track of training that the the, the, the way that one gets one's credentials in moral philosophy political science and so on um, so so well i find this
1: clarification helpful but ultimately unpersuasive yeah okay i mean because it seems to me, again, unless I'm missing something about it, it seems to be denying the, incre- depending on which institution you're talking about, the increasingly hegemonic position that these sorts of critical theories enjoy within tertiary arts degrees.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That is, the however- fashion of this is the fashion of the of the academic moment. If you want to be unfashionable, you would be a straight up and down liberal
0: within. Or say a straight-up-and-down Rawlsian, let's say. Yeah. 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 That,
1: that that would be a deeply unfashionable place to be.
0: I think that's right. It is worth saying, though, that that is a relatively new phenomenon. In other words, many humanities departments are now experiencing what many English literature departments and many religion faculties experienced in the early 1990s, which was the sudden introduction of this relatively alien form of discourse, the reworking of the, of the curriculum, of the reading lists, of the topics of urgent conversation – of the things that exercise faculty publication and whatever, to the detriment of what was historically recognizable within each one of those disciplines as being proper to, quote-unquote, proper to English literature or religion.
1: Sure, but you've just said this begins in the 90s. I mean, you could go back to critical race theory and say it begins in the 80s if you want. That's really rapid. I mean, that's... to, To say that this was some kind of... Outsider that was being denied access for so long, and it's only just just recently got in. No, no, no. You're talking about disciplines that are built up over centuries, and you're saying in a matter of decades Mm. they've become this dominant, and that and that maybe dominant's too strong a word. This present, this powerful, and you want to position it as an outsider. Sorry, I just I just cannot I I cannot buy it. Okay, I, I, I think, and I think it overlooks great perhaps central irony of all of this in that it is a discourse that wants to position power as being everything and right the wrongs of unequal power distributions, but it is itself fully encoded with power. It's just a power that it chooses not, or or perhaps not chooses, it's a power that it doesn't necessarily recognize because its lens is a postmodern lens rather than a materialist lens or some other kind of lens that's the criticism certainly that a marxist would make and far be it from me to make that criticism on their behalf because i'm not a marxist but there's they're identifying something powerful in the same way that i think postmodern critical theories identify something powerful in the same way that you know cosmopolitan theorists identify something powerful the problem is identifying something powerful doesn't necessarily get you very far when you start to unroll you know roll it out as a more comprehensive theory. And I think that's ultimately what we're looking at now. Interesting.
0: Where I think this does leave us, though, Waleed, um, and I was really thrilled to see the way that you marshaled this vernacular in the course of your piece, and certainly the way that you wrapped the piece, was by pointing to, in many respects, not just the indispensability of class, which was something that, you know, surfaced a number of times, and I was thrilled to see it, but also the indispensability of the diversity of groups gathering together and pursuing together the claims of justice. And I think one of the things that, that particular forms of language, particular modes of appeal, which I think have been complicit in various forms of, let's call it aesthetic alienation. If you can't talk like me, then I can't speak with you. If you don't enjoy the same things that I do, then I can't share this cultural space with you. I think one of the things that that is is required for any pursuit of justice worth the name of justice is for there to be su- sufficient time, sufficient space to hear the way in which one registers the depth of their moral pain, the depth of their experience in the world. And I think if we're going to give that that those voices, that uh, uh, that particular way of framing one's pain, one's sense of grievance, one's sense of injustice, that takes time. And it takes time then to fully register, to grasp the degree, the intensity of one's grief, of one's sense of injustice. And so it, it thrills me and it heartens me that you end up with time and you end up with the problem of overmuch patience of rushing too quickly to judgment or to conclusion rather than recognizing the time that's inherent for any justice worth its name
1: yeah i mean in some ways that comes naturally to me because i would describe my dispositions as conservative and so for that reason the idea of gradualism and time and so on are things that i just sort of naturally lean towards but part of it is also your fault right i mean um you've I think you've indoctrinated me partly into an Arendtian school of understanding the nature of democratic exchange and the idea of democratic community. And so that central point that I know has come up on this show quite a lot, we've spoken about it a lot, um, but that democracies only work when we imagine a common future and work towards that in a deliberative way, Mm. rather than when we try to eliminate one another via some kind of trench warfare. I think has left a deep impression on me. Hmm. I think um, so if I'm wrong about that, then you're coming down with <laughs> me but i <laughs> but but i but I think that's ultimately where where it ends up but th- but that's partly why I think you know boiling the cancer culture debate down to a free speech debate misses the mark for me. It's not that free speech is irrelevant and it's not that intolerance or tolerance is irrelevant. I do believe in free speech and I do believe in the need for tolerance and I do believe that means tolerating views that you find repugnant. And I I believe those things, but that's not all of what this is. This is actually, I think about democratic culture and the collapse in democratic culture. And so one of the points we haven't discussed, but which is kind of how I end up concluding the essay, is that you can have your problems with cancel culture, and I do, but you have to own up to the fact that it reflects a broader decay in our rhetorical environment that existed before cancel culture came along, that is practised by cancel culture's critics in many cases, particularly on the conservative side of, of our political divide. And so that in some respects, while we can talk about the theoretical underpinnings of cancer culture that are new and real and, uh, or newish and real, and I think a problem, we have to recognise that they're really just using tools that have been left behind mm. by people who didn't care to tend to the garden of our
0: public discourse. Wow. Beautiful. That's where we'll leave it? We could go. We'll, we'll have you back on the show, Willie. leave <laughs> it. Thank you.